0: Take your Bibles now, please, and let's turn to the book of Acts, chapter 18. We will read verses 9 through 17. Now hear God's word. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid. But go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm me. For I have many people in this city, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying... This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves, I have refused to be a judge in these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the trib- tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Grass withers, the flower fades, God's word stands forever.
1: Will you all pray with me as we come to the word of God today? Our God and our Father, how grateful we are to be in your presence this day. How grateful we are for the words that we've just sung and the assurance that your word gives us of their truthfulness, that we are yours, that you have befriended us, that you have promised to receive us, poor and sinful though we be, that you have mercy to relieve us, grace to cleanse and power to set us free. And so, Father, we come to your word this morning looking for that mercy, looking for that grace looking for that power and knowing that we have come to the fount that never runs dry and giving you praise, Father, for all that you do to meet us in our needs and to strengthen us and to equip us and to encourage us and, Father, to use us for the sake of your glory. And so as we come to your word this morning, we pray, Holy Spirit, open our eyes, open our hearts, illuminate this word to us, teach us its truth. Encourage us by it, convince us of it, and strengthen us in it, we ask, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Uh, my um, our two eldest sons, Justin and Travis, are learning from Stan the science and the art of piano tuning, which means practicing it all the time which means that very frequently in our living room there are the sounds of of out-of-tune notes being played all the time because you have to put the piano out of tune on purpose in order to learn how to put it back in tune. And so there are these unpleasant sounds being played loudly over and over and over again As the boys learn how to pull those strings back into tune so that they sound good again. And they're good at it. And it reminds me some days of my soul. It reminds me some days of our souls as human beings, which can so often and in so many various ways get out of tune with the truth of God and with His goodness and then our lives at least mine, starts to make unpleasant sounds, right? Grumbling and complaining and sounds of discontentment like pitchy strings on an out-of-tune piano. And so our God is so kind to give us in His love and by His Spirit and in His infallible Word all kinds of truths that the Holy Spirit uses to pull us back into tune. And what He gives us are not only truths and, and revelations about His nature and the nature of His holiness, the nature of His grace, and, and the purposes that He has for His glory and for our redemption. He gives us all of that kind of thing propositionally, but He also gives us, in His same inerrant word, stories, which, which I love so much, historical records, of all of the wonderful, marvelous things that God does in His mercy and in His kindness for His weak, out-of-tune people in order to bless them. And how His kindness leads us to repentance and how His, His goodness and His faithfulness and His mercifulness pulls us back into tune. I love the stories. That's why I love the book of Acts. In Psalm 77, when Asaph was having a really, really bad day, he found himself tempted to start to question the goodness of God, and his, his soul was, was getting out of tune, was getting pitchy. So he starts asking questions like this, Will the Lord never again be favorable to me? A little bit of self-pity there. Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Have his promises come to an end? Has has he forgotten to be gracious to me? Is he angry with me? Is he done being compassionate to me? You ever see, his his heart and his life were out of tune, right? His soul was pitchy. You ever you ever feel that way? You ever feel the temptation to ask questions like those when things are rough? in your life and find yourself assuming that that those kinds of things must be true of God and of His goodness and of His love and of His grace. I think we all face that sometimes. And see, the problem isn't when we feel that way. It's when we let those feelings become our definition of reality And when we start to answer yes to all of those questions about God, and when those assumptions start to become what we think is actually true about God, and and, and we start to say, you know what, He is angry with me. He is punishing me like He's unjust somehow. Or He's not good somehow. He doesn't care about me. He's done being gracious with me. He's done being compassionate to me. Which is all in service of of see our fleshly pride because all of it leads to us then doing what? Well, if he doesn't care for me, then I'm going to have to take care of myself, right? I can't trust him, so I'm going to have to take matters into my own hands. And then we do all kinds of things to cope with our pain and our sorrow our way, and in our strength, leaning on our own wisdom and and our own flawed, imperfect understanding. Well, what did Asaph do in Psalm 77 when things were rough and when he was tempted to question God and question God's goodness and faithfulness and love? What did he do? Well, instead of continuing to, to, to play out of tune in his soul, he submitted himself to the tuning hammer of God's Word. He took his thoughts captive to the truth that God reveals. And he reminded himself that God's Word is an infinitely more reliable guide than his own feelings and his own assumptions. And so, he said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High God. And what he meant by that, of course, was I'm not going to let my own feelings and fears and finite flawed assumptions dictate to me who my God is and whether or not He's good and whether or not He cares and whether or not His grace is sufficient for me. I'm going to go to His Word. And in His Word, Asaph finds tons of truth and evidence, stories, historical records of God just being unfathomably and inexplicably kind and gracious and loving and faithful and good to his own people and in spite of themselves. That's what I'm going to appeal to. That's what I'm going to focus on. That's what I'm going to tune my heart and my mind to. The long years of the right hand of the Most High. The countless examples of times when God was good in caring for his own. I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work, God, Asaph prayed that day. I will meditate on your mighty deeds. And then what happens is when he gets his eyes off of himself and onto his God, then his sorrow and discouragement started to resolve into into joy and contentment and thanksgiving. And so he just spends the rest of Psalm 77 rejoicing in the God who is so good that for countless years he has done massively good things for his people. Because again, Asaph, he took his eyes off of Asaph, locked them on to the Most High God, And allowed the truth of the beauty of God's holiness and faithfulness and goodness to retune his soul. So that it resonated with the truth and the goodness of God and rejoiced. And here's the thing. Our souls are just like pianos except worse. They've got to keep being tuned. They don't stay in tune. All kinds of factors based on the age of the strings and the temperature of the air and the the humidity and all these things play into how fast a piano goes out of tune and needs to be retuned. And our souls need to be retuned every single day, don't they? That's called normal life. And God's grace is always sufficient for it. And I love the book of Acts because of all the stories The historical records of all of God's kindness and goodness and powerfulness and graciousness and faithfulness to His own people in spite of them. In spite of how out of tune they get. In spite of how weak they are. In spite of how fearful they get. That encourages me. Acts is an encouraging place to abide our minds and our hearts in when we need tuning in chapter 18 is certainly no exception. I love these verses that we're going to focus on together here today. And the great promise that our Lord Jesus Christ speaks to us through Paul in these verses. And then the awesome fulfillment of that promise that we have record of here today. So that we can look back and say, in the long years of the right hand of the Most High God, look at what He did. And if he could do that for Paul in Corinth, he can certainly sustain me. So let's take a look at it here together. In Acts 18, you'll remember from last time, Paul is in the massive Roman city of Corinth. And he's preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified there. And, and he starts out primarily in the synagogue on the Sabbath. That was, of course, his regular pattern as we've seen all throughout his travels in the book of Acts. And in Corinth, again, like in many other synagogues in many other cities and places he's been, when he preaches the gospel, the Jewish people reject it. And in Corinth, we saw last time, they opposed Paul. When he preached the gospel, they they actively set themselves against him as in battle. They became combative with Paul over this, remember? And they reviled him. They verbally assaulted him. They, They became verbally abusive to him. And so Paul, having been a faithful messenger of the gospel, and knowing that salvation belongs to the Lord knowing that that he had no power in himself, no ability of his own to change their hearts and to save their souls, Paul, remember, shook the dust out from his garment, which they would have recognized from the Old Testament book of Nehemiah as a statement that they were being left unto God. Left unto God's judgments. Again, vengeance belongs to the Lord. And not to us. If if people revile us, it's not for us to bring judgment on them. It's for us to warn them of the judgment that is coming. And then say, now you're in God's hands. Now you're at the Almighty's mercy. And move on. Which is what Paul did, right? He was a faithful messenger. He preached the good news. He sounded the warning. Your blood's not on my hands. I proclaimed unto you the way of salvation from the wrath of God that is to come, and if you reject it, it's not on me. And it's up to the sovereign Lord to either leave you in your stubborn unbelief or save you from yourselves and from His wrath. And, and then Paul moved on, right? He said, now for the, as long as I'm here in Corinth, I'm not going to go into the synagogue and preach to the Jews any longer. Uh, from now on, I'm going to the Gentiles. And so that's what he did for a long time, right? For a year and six months, and then verse 18 says after this he stayed many days longer. He was in Corinth for a long time preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. And that's where we left off last time in verse 6 of Acts chapter 18. And now verse 7 tells us that after he left the synagogue and shook out the dust, he just walks next door to the home of a man named Titius Justus. It's a good Roman name, right? Who was a worshiper of God? A Roman citizen, a Gentile. And so already we see that even though Paul had been opposed and reviled in the synagogue, his ministry was not in vain because God was pouring out mercy right next door. The Lord was opening blind eyes. The Lord was giving life to dead souls through the power of the gospel right next door. Don't ever doubt what God can do or where He can do it. And verse 8 tells us that the power of God in the gospel was strong enough even to overcome the unbelief and save the soul of, of none less than Crispus who was the leader of the synagogue. So, right there in the building where all of the opposition and revilement was happening against Paul, the leader of the synagogue became a Christian. I mean, think about Crispus. What human, earthly motivation would he have had in following Paul? following jesus christ becoming a proponent of this message that jesus is the true messiah and that his death and resurrection is the only way of salvation what 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 motivation would he have for for becoming a believer in that message when when most of the jews in his synagogue were so violently opposed to it none right no motivation There was nothing to benefit Crispus in any earthly or fleshly sense by becoming a follower of Jesus. Now see, for him, of all people in Corinth, there would be a great cost to count. He was putting himself at great risk to profess faith in this gospel and to side with Paul. In professing Jesus to be the true Messiah. There would be a cross to bear. Because of the opposition and the revilement that had been already expressed against Paul. From the very people who were a part of the synagogue that that Crispus was the ruler of. And yet with everything in this world to lose. Crispus believed the gospel. And so did his whole household verse 8 says. And the only explanation for it, the only reason for it, is exactly what Paul wrote to the church in Corinth years later after all of this took place, in the letter that he wrote and sent back there, 1 Corinthians, in chapter 2, remember? He says there that when he was with them, at first, here in Acts 18, preaching and teaching, he wasn't relying on... On human powers of persuasion, fancy polished rhetoric, and slick presentations, and maybe celebrity endorsements, and great anecdotes, and funny stories, and sophisticated philosophical reasoning. He deliberately shunned all of that that might be impressive to people in this world, that might have an influence on people in this world. That might be persuasive. Because he didn't want anybody being impressed or influenced by or persuaded by things of this earth. See? So he shunned all of that so that no one who responded positively to the gospel and joined the church there in Corinth like Crispus did and his whole family, none of them could say, yeah, um, I know it's crazy because the message was so out there. It's just this guy, Paul was such a great speaker. And boy, was he funny. And he told the best stories, and he made me feel so good about myself. And so I just couldn't resist him, right? That's exactly what Paul didn't want to happen. And so he said there in 1 Corinthians 2, I came in fear and with much trembling and in my own weakness. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of the power of God so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You see? So that anyone who ended up believing would say something more like this, like, you know what, there is no earthly explanation for for it. This is what Crispus would say. I lost everything, I lost my job, my position in the synagogue, my position in the Jewish community, all my friends, I lost everything, there's no earthly explanation for why I believe this, and and it had nothing even to do with Paul, here came this guy, who was a terrible speaker, he's nervous all the time, he's all shaky and jittery, he's pretty funny looking, which Historically, by historical accounts, Paul was, Paul was not a good-looking man. He was not a handsome guy. He was short. He was sort of squatty. He had a big hooked nose and a, and a unibrow. Uh, so here, you know, this weird-looking little guy who didn't speak well, who was wildly unpopular. Everyone hated him and wanted to kill him. But somehow, in spite of all that... The message that he proclaimed made my heart sing. I believed it in spite of that awkward, ugly, nervous, unpopular little guy. And in spite of the fact that almost everyone else who heard his message like, like wanted to kill him, literally, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That's what overcame Crispus's unbelief and his family's unbelief. That's what opened their blind eyes and gave life to their dead souls. That's why they believed when there was no earthly reason for them to do that. And there was every earthly reason for them to reject the gospel and and, and to, to, to take the wide safe road instead but the power of God overcame it all. So, Titius Justice, who lives next door to the synagogue, believed. Crispus believed. Families believed. Wives believed. Kids believed. Household servants believed. The power of God was unleashed. All of them believed. Against all earthly odds, faith reigned in human hearts. Even through the weakness of the gospel proclaimed. Don't ever think that anyone is beyond the power of God to save. Don't ever think that your own human weakness, that your own shortcomings can limit God's power or short-circuit the power of the gospel in you and through you. It doesn't depend on you. It's God who saves And living faith comes not through your persuasive ability or or your charming personality or your silky smooth powers of speech and rhetoric. It comes through the power of God. Through the simple biblical proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified and raised for sinners who have gone astray from God. And so Paul kept on preaching in spite of himself. In his weakness, in fear, in trembling, he says in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 5. And through him, and through the gospel, the power of God just ripped through that city. That wicked, pagan, worldly city. And many of the Corinthians, verse 8 says, many of them believed and were baptized. Because God, who promised to be with Paul... In his fearfulness, in his weakness, while he kept on preaching, God had also promised that he had many people in Corinth. Isn't that wonderful? Many who were his own. Many who he had chosen from since before the foundations of the world to open their blind eyes and save their souls. He was purposing to save many what a great testament to God's goodness and faithfulness and kindness to Paul and to all these lost sinners in Corinth and in spite of themselves and in spite of their tendencies and propensities to question the goodness of God and to put their confidence in their own strength instead God still had mercy now think about those words of Paul over there in 1 Corinthians 2 where he describes this season of ministry that he had in Corinth. The one that we're reading about here in Acts 18. It wasn't an easy season for him, right? He said this ministry of the gospel was done in Corinth with much fear and trembling. And he says that to them as if they'd go, yep, we we saw it. We sensed it. We, we knew your nervousness, your anxiousness, your fearfulness, your weakness. We, we remember. And Acts 18 helps us understand why, doesn't it? Why was Paul so fearful while he was ministering the gospel in Corinth? Well, because they were opposing him and reviling him like we saw last week. And, verse 12 says, when Gallio was... Pro council of Achaia, the Jews then made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal of Gallio. That's a Roman tribunal, it's a secular court. So these Jewish people, these hateful, unbelieving Jewish people, conspired together against Paul, made a united attack, assault on Paul, hauled him into this secular Roman court of the provincial governor of Achaia, who's named Gallio, He's the governor of the whole province of Achaia, where Athens and Corinth were located there in the Roman Empire. By the way, this single little detail that Luke furnishes us with there in verse 12, that the Jews hauled Paul into the tribunal when Gallio was the proconsul that gives us a very definite fixed date for when Paul was in Corinth. Because historically we know about Gallio, We know that he served as the proconsul of Achaia for less than a single year, between 50 and 51 A.D. And so we know that's when Paul was in Corinth. And remember that the book of Acts begins, right, with the day of Pentecost in the year 30 A.D., and so here, by this point in chapter 18 in Corinth, more than 20 years have transpired in the growth of the early church in the ancient world. And here, Luke tells us that these Jews in Corinth were so opposed to Paul, so opposed to the gospel, so hateful in their souls, that they conspired together to drag him into Gallio's tribunal and bring him up on charges of, of, of essentially sedition against the empire. This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law, contrary to Roman law. And the word persuade there always, especially in legal contexts, has connotations of deception, dishonesty. He's lying. He's deceiving people into worshiping God and breaking the law. So what they want is not just to deal with Paul themselves, but to bring the full weight of Roman justice down on Paul's head. That's what they want. Which, if they succeeded, could have easily meant for Paul a lifelong imprisonment or exile outside of the empire altogether or or death. So this is kind of a problem. And Gallio is is a new proconsul seal. We know that historically. He's just started his tenure and it's not going to last very long. See, he'd be eager to protect his position. He would want to to do things that would impress Rome. He would be very, very keen to protect the all-important Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, the peace of the empire. And so he might well be very quick to just appease an angry mob of Jews in Corinth by, by giving them whatever they want. Well, I don't want a riot on my hands. So it's, it's this, this guy you're upset with, and if I, if I throw him in prison or, or kill him, you'll, you'll all be happy and the peace will be preserved. He might very easily be motivated just to, just to do it. I mean, that's what happened to Jesus, right? There was no objective standard by which Jesus was judged by Pontius Pilate, was there? But there was an angry mob of Jewish people in Jerusalem demanding Jesus be crucified. What, and at first, Pilate told him, I, I find no fault in him. There's, there's, there's no objective standard of law by which I can judge him. But then he ended up appeasing them and giving them Jesus to crucify on a cross instead of a convicted murderer who had broken Roman law. So see, Paul has real reason to be be concerned here, to be anxious, to be afraid. He's encountered the wrath of the unbelieving Jews before. He's been run out of town before. He's, he's been subjected to angry mobs before. He's been stoned and left for dead because of their hatred before. And now they've, they've brought him and left him at the mercy of the pagan, unbelieving Roman proconsul. But remember this. Paul was not actually, in fact, at the mercy of Galileo or of anyone else in this world because ultimately he was dependent on the mercy of God. And God, who is mercy and who is faithful, met Paul in this moment of fearful need, actually prepared Paul for it in advance, didn't he? Because, pop back up to verse 9, God was with Paul there in Corinth and said to him one night in a vision, don't be afraid. You can go on speaking. Don't be silent because I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you because I have many in this city who are my people. I'm going to use you, Paul. I'm not going to let anybody hinder you, Paul from proclaiming the gospel to the many in this city whom I have marked out for salvation and to make my own people. And I'll be with you. It was a promise for Paul. It's also a promise for all those people, isn't it? I'll be with them too. God spoke to Paul in the midst of his anxiety, in the midst of his weakness, his his personal inadequacies, his fear, and gives him these exhortations and gives him this promise. And the first exhortation he gives him is is the most important one. It's the foundation for everything else. And the first exhortation that he gives Paul there in verse nine is the toughest one to embrace and to abide by, right? Don't be afraid. It's a command. It's an impaired. Don't be afraid. Because when there are fearful things in our lives, we feel afraid, don't we? How, do we? how do we keep when we feel afraid from being afraid? When I was a kid, we were camping one time as a family. I was probably seven. And one night, after we had gone to bed in the tent, uh, a bear... <laughs> wandered into our camp and started tearing through the camp. All the cupboards, all the ice chests, where all the food was, eating all the food it could find. And so my dad, manly man that he is, took a stand at the front of the tent outside between us and the bear and banged a bunch of pots and pans together yelling and screaming at the top of his lungs. He actually had a 44 magnum that he would bring on camping trips just in case, and he fired that thing off into the trees a couple times until the bear finally just kind of shrugged and wandered off into the darkness. Now, this isn't a perfect illustration because I actually slept through the whole thing. Bear didn't wake me up, right? The pots and pans, the yelling, the, the... Handgun going off right outside the tent didn't wake me up. Um, But my mom and my sister, awake inside the tent, were terrified because there's a bear like 10 feet away, and in between them is my dad. And my dad's out there going, Don't worry, don't be afraid. Well, he's shooting and banging and yelling to scare off this bear, and that's pretty good, right? When dad's out there going, Don't be afraid. Because dad's bigger than me, but you know what? (laughs) He's not bigger than the bear. So there could have been a little bit of reason to be a little bit afraid still, even though dad's out there with the bear and some pots. (laughs) I slept through the whole thing, so I wasn't afraid at all. But the point is just this. Things that threaten us, are fearful to us, are scary for us, whether they're bears or people or circumstances, events like job losses or medical emergencies or political unrest or or global pandemics or government overreach. There are all kinds of things that are scary for us in the world, right? Because they seem to threaten us with a power that's bigger than us and that's when we fear when we feel like we're at the mercy of this big scary thing that's bigger than me, it's it's fearful. Which is why we always have to remember that just like Paul, ultimately we're never at the mercy of the people or the things in this world that threaten us with a power that's bigger than us. Because we know, don't we? By faith we know Faith is the God-given assurance in things that are unseen. And so we know that nothing in this world wields a power that is anywhere near as big as our God is. Who shall I fear if He's with me? Right? So it ultimately means that for people who belong to God, for people who are His own adopted children... He's outside the tent. He's inside the tent. He's always between us and the bear, whatever it is. And He's always bigger. Our God, our Heavenly Father, is not just a middle-aged man outside facing off a bear with pans and and a handgun. Our God is the maker of the universe. The eternal one, the almighty one the all-knowing one, the sovereign one. He's the one who's always just, who's abounding in love and mercy and faithful care for His own people. And He's the one who's always with us. Now does God, in His goodness, sovereignly ordain and allow things in our lives that are bigger than us? And that are scary and fearful for us. He does. But he doesn't do it because he's cruel and capricious and likes to scare us. And he doesn't ever do, uh, do that. He doesn't ever put us in, in positions where, where we're faced with a threat that's bigger than us. In order to leave us in the presence of those big scary things alone. Without him. No, that's not why he does it. He always, always, always does it in order to teach us to turn to him in faith, to find the help and the strength and the rest and the refuge that our fears are causing our hearts to cry out for and to find it in him and not in us or anywhere else in this world. And so it's a kindness when we're in those positions. And it's only, see, it's only when we ignore the reality of God's almighty sovereignty and goodness and nearness and and choose to fellowship more with our fears than with our heavenly Father, that's the only time that we go from feeling fearful things to being afraid to living in the fear, to submitting to the fear, to letting the fear govern us. Because in those moments, those things seem bigger to us than our God seems to us. And in that sense, being afraid is a sign of a lack of faith in the one who's bigger than whatever we're afraid of. But thankfully, our God is so kind and so gentle to His own people So here's Paul in Corinth in much fear and trembling, like it's literally having a physical impact on him because he's facing big troubles in his life. And so the Lord comes to him in a vision and says, don't be afraid. I know you feel fearful things, but don't submit to it, Paul. Don't be afraid. Don't let it control you. Don't let it keep you from preaching Don't let it keep you silent. Because I am with you as you walk by faith in your feelings of fear. And He, the Sovereign Almighty Lord, is bigger than all the trouble, right? So when God says, no one's going to attack you or harm you, Paul, Paul could take that to the bank, couldn't he? Because no one can be bigger or stronger or smarter than the Sovereign Lord of this universe. And so when Paul felt fear, even enough to make him tremble because of the powers in Corinth that were bigger than him, bigger than Paul, he could still find the courage to obey and keep preaching and not be silent because of this great sure promise that the eternal God and Lord of creation is with him and would allow no harm to come to him. You know what the definition of courage is, according to the great, (laughs) I say this tongue in cheek, the great philosopher John Wayne? The The definition of courage, according to John Wayne, is being scared to death, but saddling up anyway. See, to not be afraid is not the absence of fearful feelings. It's refusing to let those fearful feelings determine what you do and don't do. And for the child of God, the courage to serve and to obey Him in this world in spite of all of the big scary things, lions and tigers and bears and viruses and, and leftist governments and sinners. Oh my, right? All Whatever it is. <laughs> courage comes from knowing And focusing on and taking our fearful feelings and thoughts captive to the truth that God is infinitely bigger and greater, and He's with us and He's good to us. Keep speaking, Paul. Don't be silent. And he could be tempted to go, Are you kidding me, God? You know what they're going to do to me? And the Lord said, of course I know what they can do to you. And I'm not going to let them, Paul. Because I've got many people in this city who are my own. And they're going to hear you preach. And they're going to come to faith. And they're going to be saved. And I'm going to preserve you for that end. So Paul stayed there in scary Corinth for a year and six months. and, And many days passed. And kept on preaching while he was shaking in his boots. Scared to death, but saddling up anyways. Now, our God doesn't always say to us exactly what He said to Paul there in Corinth, right? He doesn't always promise to keep us from harm. And He didn't promise to never ever let harm come to Paul, right, either. Only in that season there in Corinth. Later, of course, plenty of harm was going to come Paul's way. And he'd end up multiple times in prison and the final time dying, probably as a martyr, losing his head for the sake of the gospel. God doesn't always say no harm will come to you. And sometimes in his perfect wisdom and purposes, he ordains for harm to come to his own. Even as the Father ordained... For His only begotten Son to suffer and to die on a cross for a really, really good purpose. But what does He promise? Always, always, always to His people. This. There is nothing that we can face in this world. There is no harm that we can endure that is outside of the purview of God's sovereign purposes, right? Because He is the one who works all things. How many things? All things according to the counsel of His will, Ephesians 1 verse 11 says. He's the one who sits in heaven and does all that He pleases. Psalm 115. He's the one who sits above the circle of the earth. He's the one who has numbered and named every last star in the sky, Isaiah 40 says. He's the one who upholds The whole world and all things by the word of His power, Hebrews says. He's the one who does according to His will among the host of heaven and among all the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay His hand or say, what have you done? Those were Nebuchadnezzar's words. After the sovereign God humbled that arrogant king and then restored him and filled his heart with faith, In Daniel chapter 4. This is who our God is. And always will be. He's the same yesterday and today and forever. Hebrews 13 verse 8 says. He cannot change. And here is what this sovereign God. Always says to his own people. I will never leave you. Nor forsake you. He said to Paul, while you're in Corinth, I won't let harm come to you, but not never. There's going to be harm. There's going to be deep waters. There's going to be fiery trials. There's going to be pain. There's going to be crosses to bear. What you can know infallibly is that whatever I ordain for you to suffer in this world, I will never, ever leave you. Or forsake you. I will always be there with you in it and through it. And you will never be alone. He he first said those words, I will never leave you nor forsake you, to Joshua way back in the book of Deuteronomy. And he says it again in the Holy Spirit inspired New Testament scriptures in Hebrews 13 in the New Testament. Because he is always with all of his people. And that's a promise that isn't conditioned or dependent on, on anything to do with us. Or, or our circumstances. Or what we can or can't or do or don't do. It's a promise that is dependent only on who God is in His unchanging nature. By virtue of His infinite, eternal, unchangeable, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent Divine nature, He's always with us. He will never leave us. He cannot possibly forsake us because He's God, because He's our Father, because He's love, and because He's always bigger than all of our troubles and trials and sorrows and fears. Even when we feel fear, we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to let fear govern our lives. Because our God is bigger and He is with us. And He always keeps all of His promises, right? Because He cannot do otherwise. He cannot fail. Now look at the rest of the story here in Acts 18. And how faithfully the Sovereign Lord kept his promise to Paul that he would be with Paul so as to let no harm come to Paul as Paul, feeling fear, exercised courage, mounted up anyways, kept on preaching because he trusted the promises of God, because he had his eyes locked, not on the scary things, but on the God who's bigger. And so he could keep on serving the almighty faithful God of the promise. Here's Paul in Corinth, preaching Jesus, preaching Christ crucified. All of the Jews, save for Crispus, hate him for it. They've openly opposed him, they've reviled him, they've assaulted him, they've abused him. And so he can almost feel the rocks and the stones being prepared to hurl at his head like they were back in Lystra and Derby. He's feeling fear. But he's not being afraid. He's not being silent. He's continuing to do the things that God says he needs to do. And he's doing it in spite of the fear. Because the Lord says, I'm with you. And now here it comes, right? Here comes the test of Paul's faith in God and in God's promises. Will Paul... When the threats rear their heads, will he be more constrained by fear or by faith? God has said, I won't let any harm come to you, right? But here now, these unbelieving, angry Jews have all conspired against Paul, dragged him before the tribunal of of Gallio, the Roman proconsul, in order to bring the full weight of Roman law crashing down on Paul's head. This is the time when most of us panic, right? Ah, here it comes. God's word has failed. He's forgotten to be gracious. There are several possible outcomes, and one of them is really bad, and I'm positive that's the one that's going to happen to me, right? That's, That's what it means to be afraid. It looks bad. By all earthly human standards and metrics, it seems like there's a much better chance that things are going to go poorly than that they're going to end up well, right? And then that's the time when we start putting our own mechanisms and our own abilities to work to try to figure this out and solve it instead of trusting God. So Paul starts to open his mouth, doesn't he? But he doesn't have to. God in His sovereignty and providence says, Paul, you don't even need to say a word. God has promised Paul to be with Paul, to let no harm come to Paul. So the angry, nefarious Jews level their accusations against him. He's violated Roman law. Gallio, who could very easily just appease this angry mob and throw Paul to the lions... Before Paul can get a word out of his mouth, Galileo opens up his mouth as a pagan, as an unbeliever, and says, you know what, if it was a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, Paul had done something actually really horrible, I'd have reason to accept your complaint. But since this is a matter of questions about words, you're talking about names, this all has to do with your own beliefs and your own law, so you see to it yourselves. I don't want anything to do with this. I refuse to be a judge of these things. Case dismissed. No harm will come against you. Promise kept and fulfilled. Paul's mouth shut. And then Gallio drove the Jews out. It means bodily. bodily. It means forcibly. Like Roman centurions (laughs) pulled them and threw them back out into the street from the tribunal. And then in their rage, they... They set their sights and their anger instead on the new ruler of the synagogue who had taken Crispus' place after Crispus became a Christian, this guy named Sosthenes. And they went and they, they poured out all their rage on him instead. And they beat him. Most likely because they blamed him for not successfully being able to silence Paul in Corinth all these months. But why? why? Why did it go this way? Why was this Gallio's response to reject the Jews' complaint, to toss them out on their ear? You know, I read almost a dozen commentaries on this passage. Dozens and dozens of pages talking about the history and about Gallio himself and all the political dynamics and realities of the Roman Empire at the time and all kinds of theories in these commentaries as to why Gallio felt compelled for various reasons to not throw Paul to the lions, to not string him up, to not appease the mob of angry Jews in Corinth. And most of these commentaries end up settling on some earthly reason. Like this, quote, Gallio's impatience with the Jewish accuser, accusers, Craig, Craig Keener writes this, most likely has its roots in the prevailing Roman sentiment of anti-Judaism and not merely in the new demands of his work as the proconsul. He shared a prejudice against Jewish superstition. So he's, he's predisposed, whatever, he's predisposed against the Jews. There's some rational reason. right? All these commentators go out of their way to find some earthly or political or historical rational explanation for why on earth Gallio would reject the Jews' complaint against Paul in Corinth. You know know the reason why Galileo said what he said? It's the same reason why Balaam's donkey started talking, right? The ultimate reason why no harm came to Paul by way of Galileo's considerable political power and influence is because the God of the universe had promised that it wouldn't. And so he sovereignly and providentially orchestrated things so that they didn't. And probably that included some of those historical and political rationale as secondary causes. But ultimately, it was God keeping his promise. And you can trust that even if you have no ability to predict all of the earthly rational ways in which things might turn out one way or the other for you, you can trust that God is with you and that he is bigger, and that he is able, and that he is faithful, and that he is good, and that you, even though you feel fear, don't have to yield to it and be afraid. God's the one who sets up earthly rulers and brings them down. Doesn't his word say that? Daniel chapter 2. God's the one in whose hands the hearts of kings are like streams of water. He directs them in whatever way that he wants, right? Proverbs 21. Do you believe that? That's what he did with Galileo. He directed like a like a stream of water. I don't want it to go flood this part, so I'll just turn it over here. That's who God is. It's not hard for him. The only question is, do we believe it? Or in the weakness of our faith, do we fellowship more with our fear than with our Sovereign Father? This is what God did with Galileo. And that and that alone is why Galileo decided to ignore the Jews' complaint and throw him out of the tribunal. It's the same thing God did with, with Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel, right? He changed that king's heart. He made him eat grass for seven years like a cow, Literally and then stood him back up and opened his eyes and made him proclaim the glories of the God of heaven, even though he was the most arrogant, wicked man on the face of the earth before all that. Do you believe that God can do that in this world with, with whoever's sinning against you, with whatever trouble you're facing, with whatever you're afraid of, with, with Gavin Newsom? Could he do that with Gavin Newsom? Could he do it with Joe Biden? Could he do it with Vladimir Putin? What do you fear? Who or what looms largest in your mind's eye? Who or what seems to you to be the biggest thing that has power over you? Do you believe that this virus has more autonomy to wreak havoc in this world Then the sovereign God of creation ordains for it too. It doesn't mean you don't make choices and exercise wisdom. It doesn't mean just throw caution to the wind and be dumb. But do you let fear constrain you? Or do you trust God? Do you believe that the governments of this earth, including our president, our vice president, the governor of the great state of California, are acting outside of the boundaries of God's sovereign decree? They're absolutely, in many times, acting outside of the boundaries of God's revealed will, His law, His holiness, His justice. But don't ever think, for a second, that they're outside of His sovereign, secret, divine will. And don't ever forget that all-important distinction between the revealed will of God and the secret will of God by which He ordains all things in this universe, such that nothing is outside of, of His will, of His purpose, of His ability, of His plan. Do you believe that as the rulers of this world shake their fists at Almighty God, and defy His law, and defy His holy will, that there is a single millisecond where God feels threatened by them. I mean, look, if God is sitting in heaven laughing at them, Psalm 2, and if He is with us, then why do we as His children sit here on earth panicking and freaking out? and living according to fear. And you can include, forget the world rulers, you can include every other person in this world that might be trying to make life miserable for you, every other circumstance in this world that feels overwhelming to you. It is overwhelming to you, but it's not overwhelming to the one who is with you. And he is always, always with you, no matter who stands against you, no matter what the situation is, he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He will walk through every deep river. He will walk through every fiery trial with you and supply you with all of the strength and all of the wisdom and all of the courage to walk by faith, to seek the kingdom even when you have no idea what that's going to mean in terms of the things of this earth. God says, you seek the kingdom, I'll take care of the rest. And it takes faith, which is the assurance of things unseen. Well, I can't see it, God. doesn't mean it's not there. It's in His plan, it's in His purpose, and whatever it is is better than what you could do for yourself. I promise. I promise there have been seasons in my life, in our lives, when we've thought we need to go grasping for these earthly things or else we're going to be in big trouble. And God said, no. We try. And God goes, no. You can't have it. You're going to stay here where you can't see the answers. And then he does far more abundantly beyond all that we could have ever asked for or thought to ask him for. And it's better than whatever we thought we were going to grasp for ourselves. So much better. Live by faith, not by fear. Run the race with endurance. Count the cost. Bear up your cross. Seek first the kingdom. And trust the God who is always with you. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Keep focused on the one who is the author and finisher of your faith. Be more impressed in your soul with the eternal almighty God than with the trials and the troubles of this world because He is with you in all of it, isn't He? Yes. And your heart gets out of tune every day. I know it does. And you start making unpleasant noises. I know. I do too let the truth of god his character his nature and his promises pull you back in tune every day so that you can live for his glory let's pray our god and our father we love you and we trust you and we say father we believe and we need you to help us with our unbelief father in christ We have perfect righteousness and a perfect standing before You, even though in our lives we are horribly imperfect in the way that we live, in the way that we trust, in the things that we do, in the thoughts in our minds, in the feelings in our hearts. And Your grace is sufficient for it all. And we love You and we thank You and we praise You for the stories in Your Word that teach us of the long years of the right hand, of the Most High God being at work, being near to, being present with, and being powerful for His own people. Oh God, help us trust this and let this confidence give us comfort, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Will you stand with me?